This Security Ledger Spotlight podcast is sponsored by For All Secure. For All Secure was founded with the mission to make the world's critical software safe. The company's patented technology is the product of over a decade of research into solving the difficult challenge of making software safer. For All Secure has partnered with Fortune 1000 companies in aerospace, automotive, and high tech, as well as the U.S. Department of Defense, which has integrated For All Secure's Mayhem technology into software development cycles for continuous security. Check them out at forallsecure.com. This is a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. I've said that's a deal. Plastics may have been a hot tip in 1967 when the movie The Graduate came out, but in 2019, young Benjamin might be advised to look into AI, or artificial intelligence. By 2030, it's estimated artificial intelligence could deliver additional global economic output of some $13 trillion annually, according to research by the McKinsey Global Institute. But the benefits of artificial intelligence are already upon us, and nowhere is that more evident than in the cybersecurity space, where high demand for services and an acute shortage of talent have executives, entrepreneur, and industry analysts predicting that artificial intelligence and machine learning technology will be critical to allowing companies to stay on top of fast-evolving cyber threats without breaking the bank. But how exactly will artificial intelligence help bridge the InfoSec skills gap? and what kinds of security work are still best left to humans? Our guest this week has a unique perspective to offer on those questions. David Brumley is the chief executive officer at the firm For All Secure and a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. In 2016, Professor Brumley and a team of students from CMU were victorious in DARPA's first ever Cyber Grand Challenge that pitted automated cyber defense technologies against one another. They won with Mayhem, an assisted intelligence application security testing solution. In this interview, David and I talk about the potential that artificial intelligence, machine learning, and automation hold in the information security space, what's possible today and what may be possible in the future. We also talk about the pitfalls of using artificial intelligence in cybersecurity and about the best way to tackle the U.S.'s chronic cybersecurity talent shortage. My name is David Brumley. I'm CEO of the company For All Secure. Yeah. For All Secure does automated analysis to find unknown defects in applications. We look for exploitable vulnerabilities. So when we started this company, our mission and the set of products we're bringing to market are to automatically check the world's software for exploitable vulnerabilities. And the two key important words for us are we want things that are automatic and to look at exploitable vulnerabilities. As we have often said or observed on Security Ledger podcast, you know, every company these days is becoming or has already become a software company. Um, what kinds of uh, companies does For All Secure work with? Are these traditional software publishers or are you working with some of the many companies that maybe are developing physical devices that run software? 
Yeah, we've had kind of an interesting path. We came out of a DARPA research project called the Cyber Grand Challenge. And so when we first came to market, our big customers were the US government. And kind of interestingly, we're testing already compiled software. So we're testing it on the test and evaluation where someone has already written it. And then later on, it needs to be checked for vulnerabilities. Since then, we've expanded into the commercial sector and we're working in aerospace along with high-tech companies who really want to do a better job finding these vulnerabilities before attackers. And uh, the Cyber Grand Challenge, uh, tell our audience just a little bit about the origins and, and what, what that uh, challenge is about. The Cyber Grand Challenge was pretty cool. So in 2014, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, the people who really funded the original internet, said, can we make cyber fully autonomous. And what they meant by that is, given applications that you didn't write, can you write a system that automatically finds and proves vulnerabilities, is able to self-heal? And one of the unique things about how they did this is they judged it in a full spectrum hacking contest. So it wasn't about saying, okay, you know, I think I found a bug and maybe this is a patch. It was about showing that you could actually beat adversaries and do these two steps faster than anyone else. What are some of the types of tasks that maybe today human beings are being asked to do that would be better off shunting them off to a automated system, a machine learning system, for example, to, uh, to perform? One of the things that we've found is that humans are really bad at finding many types of common security vulnerabilities, especially in high-performance languages like C, uh, Go, or Rust, or something that's going to get compiled down to an executable. And so the machines are really good about systematically testing those. And one of the cool things you can do is just add more CPU power to do better testing. It's much cheaper than, for example, hiring an FTE. What we've seen in practice, for example, is Google has used automated fuzzing to find, I think, 12,000 new bugs in Chrome completely automatically. And of course, these are things that humans had missed previously. These are bugs that, that already made it through whatever QA process Chrome has, which presumably is pretty uh, substantial. Oh, yeah. The Chrome team, I think there's 38 people just on the security team. So these are smart, well-funded people. But it's just hard to do that sort of in-depth testing. But computers never get tired. They can be the proverbial monkey on the keyboard typing 24-7, trying to find those problems and proving them. When we talk about finding vulnerabilities in software, what types of activities are we really talking about? I mean, give us an example of how either a human or a computer you know, learning system might go about locating a vulnerability in uncompiled code or compiled code, I guess, for that matter. <laughs> I mean, those are really uh, historically two different processes. So like if you had compiled code, like if you're just given software, you bought it, maybe it's part of your Soho wireless router, really it would take significant reverse engineering expertise to even begin going down the path of finding exploitable vulnerabilities. And so that's a place where computers can really do a lot more than humans because they can reason about the code as it actually is going to execute. Um, once code is compiled, that's a language for computers to execute. So it makes sense that computers mm -hmm. are the best at analyzing it. When you look at when people have source codes, people are like, well, why do we need computers there? And the reason is often people make mistakes in how they think about a program. For example, they may think, hey, you know, the user is going to give me an input and it's only going to be as long as maybe a DNS record, but they never actually check that. And computers can find those side cases. They can help cover the human blind spots, I guess, is one way to put it. You know, assumptions, I guess, that developers make that, you know, users are going to use their software as designed rather than look for mistakes or vulnerabilities in it. I mean, that seems to be a, a major obstacle even today. 
it's a huge obstacle. And I want to talk a second about the software supply chain problem. So we've seen a pretty recurring problem. You know, you'll write an application and maybe it parses XML or JSON. So you go find open source that parses XML or JSON and you'll build your application on top of that. And even if you audit your own software, you're inheriting all these software vulnerabilities from the supply chain. And so you need to start looking at techniques that help you check that supply chain. Because at the end of the day, like, the user, the hacker, they don't care whether it was your software or the open source software or something from a third party. They just see it as your app. And it's a huge blind spot. Developers often forget to check that. Yeah. I mean, there are companies out there that do uh, assessments of open source, right? Uh, Black Duck and Synopsys and companies like that. I mean, is that is it adequate to use their services or is there more that needs to be done? Well, I think it's still a growing field. Like if you look at this idea of, I think we call it software component analysis, SCA, it's a rather new field. And the general idea for SCA tools is, hey, I know this uh, piece of software is vulnerable. It's an open source. And they'll try to identify whether or not it's part of your build. Like, you know, if you're technical, they'll try to do a strings and say, hey, the library version that you know, uh, that we know is vulnerable is present on your system. Um I think that's a good start. Really what that's doing is saying all the known vulnerabilities out there on open source, we can make sure that, you know, whether or not you're using those known vulnerable components. But we have to go beyond that because open source isn't deeply checked. I mean, this idea that mini eyes finds all vulnerabilities was a great theory, but it hasn't proven itself out in practice. And that's where we find techniques like buzzing. They don't, they don't just assume the open source community knows of all bugs in it. And so it's sufficient just to check for known bugs. If we use an XML library, just using the current version of that library isn't enough. There's still probably a whole host of problems that are still latent in it. Or it could just be how you're using it in your application is unintended, perfectly fine for you, but creates new security vulnerabilities you need to check. So I say it's a blind spot because developers often think like it wasn't developed here, so we don't have to worry about it. Or we'll just run SCA. That's really just saying, well, I'm sure someone else is checking. And we talked about, I know before, also the, the mental assumption, I think, that people make that if it, especially if it's a widely used component, then you're kind of extra safe because so many people use it, you know, somewhere along the line there, somebody must have audited this code. It's not me, but I'm assuming 100,000 downloads, somebody's audited it. But in fact, I think we see that that that's not the case, that everybody's kind of pointing fingers at everybody else. And and often these widely used components, as you said, open source components, libraries, and so on, might have even glaring vulnerabilities, such as nobody, nobody spotted. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you think about it in terms of incentive, those open source developers are often unpaid. They're doing it as a side project. Yeah. Maybe in the best case, like Apache, there's a foundation, but they're not staffed to go and do rigorous security audits. So it could be popular, it's solving an important problem, but that doesn't mean that you should assume for your use case that it's secure enough. I mean, it's, it's really on you if you're shipping software to make sure everything you do is secure. I said I ran a hacking team, and one of the things, like if you're gonna go look for a new vulnerability you do, is you actually just look through the open source components and try to figure out what hasn't been audited. If you look at like the Tesla hack, it was interesting. The way they hacked it was they found a vulnerability in Chrome. Now, of course, Tesla doesn't write Chrome, but that's just an example of, you know, they're using open source. They said it was validated enough, but it certainly wasn't enough for automotive use. As you said, sometimes behind these widely used components might only be, you know, two or one individuals who obviously are um, more than happy to have help and and maybe not looking too closely at, at what that person who's helping them is doing. It's amazing, right? There's something that's just kind of out there, anyone can contribute, and then you're going to trust it. And we even see this in proprietary software. Like we 
did an audit of wireless routers that you can buy from Amazon. And a huge number of them contained essentially backdoors. I mean, we can call them field access if you want, but I mean, come on, if you're buying a router from Amazon, why should the company who made it be able to log into your router? Distinction without a difference, as I say. Yeah, I mean, you know. We literally found a device that was used in safety critical systems that had a program called BK Door, backdoor, on the system. (laughs) Just in case case you were confused by the the, uh, unusual name of the function, what it was for, BK Door. There we go. Oh, no, yeah. (laughs) That's for, that's for field maintenance. And I'm pretty sure none of the users expected that. You know, one of the challenges is that organizations, just as the sort of risk problem, you know, bites and, and there, there's more higher stakes and more people kind of paying attention to application security, there's also tremendous pressure to rapidly iterate uh, software uh, programs and applications. And that preferences uh, speed and kind of getting code out there. Is it possible to kind of reconcile that with the types of things that you're talking about? And, and if so, how? So some people use us and the way our product Mayhem was designed was to check compiled software. So this allows the end user to check the security of the software they use, which I just felt was a fundamental primitive. We didn't have like, you know, things like SCA and static analysis. Those are for the developer to check and that's great, but the end user should be able to check. Nonetheless, that's at the end of the process. And what we're seeing with the rise of DevSecOps is I really think it's a transformational technology or transformational idiom. We're saying it's not enough to check security at the end. It has to be integrated into your dev cycle. And just like any new process, there's things you can do to make your life easier. Um, You know, if you just take the same old way you've done stuff and say, okay, we're going to add security and shift left, that's not enough. You have to say, what are the new processes and where can we add it to our pipeline to find these things as early as possible? And we're starting to see a shift towards that. Um, Of course, it's not happening, I think, as quick as any of us would like. Um, but there are companies doing it. We talk about autonomous security. I mean, what, what in your mind is the proper balance, I guess, between automation and uh, human uh, analysts? Where's the handoff? And what are things that, at least at this point in time, you're much better off having humans look at? And what are things that, you know, you might be save money and be better off having the computers and machine learning algorithms take care of? That's a good question. So so first, I think in a lot of practices, the human is the weak point, um, especially when you look at how software is deployed. It can be days, weeks, uh, months, years before software gets deployed that has a fix, and we have to reduce that time. And so that's a place for autonomy. If it passes your regression test, you should be able to field it. That's what the dream in your organization you should be shooting for. So I think that's one of the properties is make sure that you can automate to the point that if your automation says it's a pass, that you can actually field it. I think the role of the human is to architect the system to make it easy to check. And so I'll use Google Chrome as an example. Just we didn't write Google Chrome. So it's a great kind of third party example. Google has spent a lot of time building sandboxes into their web browser. So these are like little safety pits for the thing playing MP3s and the thing that's playing videos and the thing that's doing uh, audio processing. And the reason they do that is not just for security. It just makes the, the software easier to test. And so... To answer your question, the human had to set up the architecture. They said, okay, this is a chunk. It's going to be one component and it's going to be testable. This is another chunk. It's testable. I can put them together and that's testable. And you need the human to design those systems so that the computer can take over from there. 
you know, you talked about, you know, the tremendous resources that companies like Google or Facebook, Microsoft, Apple are able to throw at security, big security problems. You know, obviously, most companies don't have those resources. And one question would be, are we already seeing sort of a security poverty line where security becomes something for big wealthy companies, but um, everybody else, you know, all the other kind of software publishers out there, it's sort of beyond their reach just because, as you said, the, the scarcity of talent, the cost of that talent, and obviously the demands of, of the marketplace. And I guess, is there a way to, um, to get around that, to kind of square that triangle? Oh, it's interesting that you had it as a security poverty line. I hadn't heard that, but that's exactly what we're experiencing. So the long-term fix, right, is we need to get more people interested in computer security as a field. There's just too few people coming out, which makes those coming out such highly sought after people that it's really hard to compete with a Google job offer if you're a smaller company um, and you're not willing to pay yeah. 300K a year and all those benefits. And so I think we're seeing that poverty line. I think the common wisdom, you know, is always you need to work smarter. And the way that you do that is you can look at what are those companies doing that's automated? How do I switch my processes so that I can take advantage of those, even though I'm not big? And so Google has, I think, 24,000 CPU cores that are trying to do fuzz testing for Google Chrome. Now, most people don't have 24,000 cores, but there's services and products like ours, or there's open source utilities like AFL, where you can set it up yourself. Mm -hmm. And you know, even just putting 10 CPUs automatically checking your target, you're going to find a lot of problems that you didn't know about before. I mean, I don't want to distract us from, we have to fix the larger problem that computer security, I'm just going to be direct, is not a known field to the high school student. They don't come to university yeah. by and large saying, I want to be a computer security expert, even though it's highly paid, tons of jobs, great career paths. We need to fix that problem. I don't want to belittle that at all. And things like hacking contests, engaging with open source, engaging with high school students are the ways to do that. But when it comes to what can you do today, yeah. it's taking those automated processes and saying, how can we incorporate those? And the hard part for companies is you have to be willing to change. You can't just say, I don't want to change anything, but I want security tomorrow at the same scale as Google. You're never going to win that game. It's really interesting. And I mean, you're an educator, obviously, so I know you see this firsthand. As I look at it, I mean, it's it's not even that high school kids aren't thinking about cybersecurity. I mean, I, I don't see many kids thinking about software development. I mean, I, I know that those majors are popular in colleges, but if you were somebody who might was interested in something like software development, you really had to search it out and, and basically outside of the K through 12 system. Yeah, I think that you have to start at the high school. And there's a couple of barriers. Um, so one of the things we do at CMU is we run a high school hacking contest called Pico CTF. It's open to everyone. It's actually going to run in October this year. But last year, I think we had like 80,000 US high school students play. And wow. we found a couple things. That's great. So, so one thing is a lot of computer security in the marketplace is about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's about danger and you know, you can break into things and it confuses criminal with hacker. Like hacker should be something we aspire to. You shouldn't equate it with criminal. Mm -hmm. But I think like what we've, when we've run these contests, what we found is that actually puts a lot of students off as well. It's like, I, you know, my interest isn't in how to break into things. And when you start rephrasing things and say computer security is about building trust in the things that we use every day so that people can trust that you're actually helping people and good software development is the same way. You can actually reach a larger audience. I think some of the things the U.S. needs to do is actually be a little bit more serious about it. They put a lot of talk into it, but not a lot of action. 
I, I remember we, we run this as a volunteer effort, this high school hacking contest. Um, very little funding for it, pretty large participation. And we started getting letters from various states saying, hey, you have to sign all these agreements with us because our students are using it. And every state had a different process. And while I admire the overall idea that they care deeply about their student privacy and what they're looking at online, it makes it really hard to build something that touches many lives. If you look at places like Russia, it's just a gladiator sport there, right? Like whoever wins the big gladiator contest is the best. Um, and in the U.S., we're we're much more you know about human choice and about uh, freedom. Yeah. Um, and so we need to spend more time encouraging it and giving people opportunities because it's not ever going to be mandated, nor should it be mandated. But we actually have to put our money where our mouth is on this. Let's have a TV show about or a Netflix show about somebody who does cybersecurity or does software application development who isn't wearing a hoodie and you know a misanthrope. Absolutely. And you know what? This TV show exists in China where there's the movie star with the great looks, the girl, but she's a hacker playing capture the flag contest. Why don't we have that here? We have Mr. Robot, which is an amazing show, an amazing show, but you could be forgiven if you didn't see it and say, I'm not sure that's the community for me. Yeah. We should be raising these people up like, like a hacker, yeah. a good hacker, like the people in Ponda own yeah. are helping us make things we care about, like our cars better. Exactly. Exactly. So, 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 you know, kind of emphasizing pro-social rather than anti-social uh, tendencies. Because obviously there are many more pro-social than anti-social people out there. Yeah, I totally agree. So we're big advocates. Computer security is about fostering trust and increasing trust and actually helping people. It's about yeah. helping the person who's not a computer science or engineering major who's, you know, wants to write their English paper or wants to do research on dinosaurs, making sure they can trust right. their devices, their airplanes they fly in. And I think if we start rephrasing it that way, we'll attract a bigger audience. And I think also computer security tools really need to start fo uh, focusing more on that message. I mean, we in industry need to do our part of not just going about the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, doubt. So for you know folks who are out there listening to Security Ledger podcasts, maybe they're you know working in technology, maybe they're working for a company that uh, you know is is making some software driven thing. They're probably worried as heck about their software supply chain risk. Where do they start? How do they even start to get their arms around this very big problem? Well, I think you know there's different stages for everyone. So I'll give a couple pieces of advice. Denial is the first stage, right? <laughs> Denial is the first stage. The second is wishing, you know. <laughs> Why didn't someone else solve it? I hope that there's like, I can just go buy that black box and it works. The third stage is outsourcing. Third stage is outsourcing. That doesn't work so well. I think <laughs> I'm a big believer that you got to look at pairing tools with processes. So, you know, for all secure, we have tools that help uh, companies automate the same sort of things Google and Microsoft do. Um, we think they're more technically advanced. Like we won the Cyber Grand Challenge, DARPA deemed us best. Um, our website is F-O-R-A-L-L-S-E-C-U-R-E.com. So I think if you're in business, like that's a great way to get started, uh, started is just talk to us, get a different perspective. I think if what you're trying to also do is grow the community, and I think some of your listeners are, encourage people to play in these hacking contests like PicoCTF.com. You can learn a lot. We have a large number of, of US high school students play, like I said, create your own. Like We by no means think that we should be the authoritative source on that. So I think that, that's two answers there. One is Start looking at products and don't just say, okay, I'm going to go look at, at what everyone else is buying. Start thinking about, well, what do the best people do and how do I mimic that? Because it's not as hard as you think to get those sort of tools and we offer them. And then the second is start participating in the community for growing it. I think that we're really at a transition point in the US and as far as software development. 
And so I really look forward to hearing from people what they think are their problems so that we can better address them. I've talked about some here, but I think it's good to have that dialogue. So anyone feel free to reach out to me. It's just dbrumley at forallsecure.com. David Brumley of For All Secure, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Have a great day. David Brumley is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder at For All Secure. You've been listening to a Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger Podcast, sponsored by For All Secure. For All Secure was founded with the mission to make the world's critical software safe. The company's patented technology is the product of over a decade of research into solving the difficult challenge of making software safer. For All Secure has partnered with Fortune 1000 companies in aerospace, automotive, and high-tech, as well as the U.S. Department of Defense, which has integrated For All Secure's Mayhem technology into software development cycles for continuous security. Check them out at forallsecure.com.